Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I have coached leader after leader after leader and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult and, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 11 of the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm Jono White, your host, uh, founder and principal consultant of Clarity. And I have, I was just saying actually off, um, off the mic before we started recording that I've been looking forward to this all day because today's guest is Paul Fochman. Paul is the head of school at Frankfurt International School. And uh, since 2010, Dr. Fochman has served as as the head of school, like I said, at Frankfurt International School, it's an IB world school that serves nearly 
1,800 students aged 3 to grade 12 across two campuses in the heart of Germany. Originally from, and Paul can correct me shortly whether I get this right, uh, Potosky in Michigan, (laughs) Dr. Fochman's career began in the pharmaceutical industry, but shifted to education in the early 90s. Since then, his career has taken him across the globe from a high school chemistry, economics and physics teacher in Guam, uh, in Gorm, to principalships and a superintendent role at international schools in New Delhi and Mumbai. In 2018, he was named Superintendent of the Year by the Association for the Advancement of International Education, the youngest recipient of the, of the award to date. Dr. Fochman studied business and economics at Lycoming College, educational administration at the University of Guam, and business administration at Duke University before completing his doctoral study at the University of Minnesota. In 2016, Dr. Fochman was also awarded a fully funded fellowship to, and I'll once again see if I get this right, the Klingenstein Center for Independent School Leadership's Heads of Schools Program at Teachers College, Columbia University. Dr. Fochman and his family are deeply involved in service, having participated in several Operation Smile missions, the Kalahari Education Experience Project in South Africa, and other educational initiatives throughout Asia. In addition to his role as head of school at FIS, Dr. Fochman is also an alumni parent. Both of his children graduated from the school. Uh, welcome, Dr. Paul Fochman. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you, Jono. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, pleasure. Well, like I said, I've been looking forward to this all day. I loved reading out your bio. And I, I have to, firstly, let me ask, because um, this links to the next question, uh, Pet- Petoskey, Michigan, Petoskey, how do you pronounce it? Yeah, Petoskey. Petoskey, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I wanted to... Um, just for just for our listeners to get to know you a little bit, you know, as I was saying before we started recording, the the idea of uh, of the podcast is that it's like we're in a cafe chatting about all things leadership, and uh, and all of our listeners from everywhere around the world are sitting with us, and we're just talking talking leadership. So I guess before we jump into that, it'd be great to get to know a, a little bit about you. You can tell us a little bit more about about where you were born, Petoskey, and, um, and just uh, tell us a little about, about your family growing up, um, you know, how many siblings you had, where you came in, in, in the siblings, that sort of stuff. Sure, sure. So actually, I was born in uh, Rochester, Minnesota for a, a year. My parents were both in the, the health field at the Mayo Clinic. Sure. And then uh, when I was two, we moved up to Petoskey, Michigan, where my dad had uh, practiced and my mom was, uh, was a nurse up there. Yep. Um, I'm the oldest of three. I've got a brother who lives in New York City and is in the uh, financial uh, business. And my sister runs her own marketing company out of Minneapolis and Florida. Um, awesome. So, yes, Petoskey is just a small... I grew up most of the time in Petoskey, a small town of 6,000 people. Wow. Uh, if you look at the, the, the Mitt, it's very much at the top right there on Lake Michigan. Uh, not very close to anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, how far how far is it? I'm always I'm always um, intrigued uh, by the difference between um, and the beauty of of childhood stories from the city or from you know uh, smaller regional towns. So how far is it to your nearest, um, you know, where, to your larger sort of cities from Petoskey? So I would say you're about if you're probably five or six hours north of Chicago or four or five hours north of. Uh, Detroit. So the next major city is quite a distance or, you know, there's different towns throughout, uh, throughout Michigan, obviously, but if you're talking about a major metropolitan place, yeah. um, you're in for a, in for a drive or a fly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Now that's really helpful for someone like me who has uh, a limited grasp of uh, geography, particularly with the U S at the best of times. So thank you. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and just once again, for our listeners uh, and for me, just so we can get to know you, a little better and just understand a bit more about you and and the background before I jump in and ask you about your leadership story. But um, what was a unique or uh, difficult challenge that you had that comes to mind from when you were growing up? You know, I don't I don't think I'd characterize as a a leadership, but, you know, growing up, my parents always uh, made me and us have jobs and work um, no matter what. So, um, so paper routes, we had several paper routes and there was this uh, um, newspaper, the Petoskey News Review. And I just recall uh, from the time I was about eight till I was 11, 
the papers would get dropped off for me to deliver. And the first thing I'd do is I'd open up the pack, go to the backside and look at the weather. And I was just intrigued at a very young age of it's 96 degrees in Bangkok, Thailand. I don't even know what 96 degrees feels like. And I can't even fathom where Bangkok, Thailand is without going, you know, for my, for my worldview was very much a small town in Northern Michigan. And early on, I think just looking at the news of the world and delivering it and then kind of starting to see the community, my community as much larger than my small town mm. started this, just this fire in my belly to, you know, go see and immerse myself in the global community. And it started very young. And that's just a never forget going, oh, 96. Wow. What does that feel like? <laughs> I love that because it's, um, you know, just the innocence of looking at that going, wow. And then it's a great segue into your story because you have traveled so much. Um, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and it, I think um, I see that as really exciting. And so tell us uh, about your leadership story. I, I guess particularly I'm interested to hear um, some of the moments along the way that have really shaped you know, Paul Fochman becoming who you are today as a leader. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. I, did, I, I took some education courses in my undergraduate, but never saw myself um, as a teacher. I really was looking, you know, as you noted, I was in the pharmaceutical industry early on. Mm. And I'm glad I came to this uh, view early, early in my life. And I was selling pharmaceuticals in the Chicago area and, um, you know, it just, it was a good job. Uh, it was a time when it was hard getting jobs. Um, and it just was not fueling my soul. And, um, I just recall actually go, going for a long weekend and I was walking back in Northern Michigan again. It's just like, I, I got it. I it's, I've got to do something that is meaningful. And, yeah. you know, I thought about some of the people in my life, different teachers and, you know, even that actually was like a high school principal and administrator in particular. And I thought, you know, they, they are making a difference. My parents have made a difference in the health field. I, yeah. I, there's more to life than this. Um, <laughs> and I actually flew to the Island of Guam where my dad was, my mom and dad had retired. Uh, well, one retired, one hadn't, um, and they were working over there. So I went over there to visit wow. and, um, I, uh, I came, I guess, back up a little bit. So I was in North Michigan. I walk in thinking about, I want to, I, I need something more meaningful. So with that in, in, in my head, I went to visit Guam and I, uh, I met these teachers, um, and, uh, went biking with them and got to know them pretty well. in, in the short time we we're there and the department of defense, uh, needed teachers. And I had this, uh, science background, science and business background, because um, at one point I thought about medical school as well. So I had enough science and they said, um, we need science teachers and we will get you certified if you'll come over as an emergency certified teacher. So on the plane ride back to the United States, I thought about it and I said, I'm, I'm going to do it. So I quit my job and uh, packed my bags and moved to Guam and went to work for uh, the Department of Defense uh, on the island of Guam. Um, wow. It's really in their public school system. At, at that time, the Department of Defense and the island of Guam, um, their students all went to the same school. And I was certified as a teacher. And while um, they were constructing a new school, it wasn't quite done. So an uh, interesting story was, as I was waiting to be the high school chemistry teacher, um, they didn't have a room for me. So for the first semester, they said, well, we're going to send you up to Price Elementary School and you're going to teach kindergarten. And the <laughs> class you get is... Yeah. So they said that teachers all got to pick three students that they wanted out of their class to make my class, which made for an interesting dynamic of the class. Oh, no. And the teacher's lounge kind of had across and watched me uh, uh, make my way through. And so I, I was able to watch kindergarten cop take classes at the University of Guam and be emergency certified. And that got me uh, my beginning in teaching. Uh, then after that semester, I did go on to be a uh, high school, ninth and 10th grade, then AP chemistry and um, economics teacher. Um, then there was an earthquake that um, caused one of our high schools to be, um, could not be used. So we ran, mm. um, so um, I started a master's degree and again, they, they, that was supported. Um, and I began a degree in administration and, uh, with this earthquake, we ran two sessions of schools 
And in the morning, I was able to teach. And then at 1230, a completely other uh, several thousand student high school would come in and I would be an assistant principal intern. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that was Guam. And then uh, short, uh, about a year or so after that or so, um, I was approached about uh, an assistant principal's position at another major high school, and I accepted that position. Um, and then uh, um, came back to, I was, I was coming back to the United States to my wife and I to get married and um, had an interview conversation with a superintendent in Michigan who uh, a couple weeks later came back to me and offered me a position as an assistant principal and a physics teacher. And wow. after we thought about it, I moved back to Michigan and was a assistant principal, then principal um, and teacher, transportation coordinator, and everything um, <laughs> you do at a small school. Yeah. Um, then on to, let's see, on to India, um, where, um, where I remember sitting in Michigan and thinking, um, India, wow, that's, a, that's quite, a, quite a change. And next thing you know, we're interviewing for the middle school principalship at the American Embassy School in New Delhi. Um, where I was a middle school principal and high school principal. And we spent six years uh, there. And then on to Mumbai, where I was a superintendent in Mumbai um, for six years in a time of just dramatic growth of the country, um, of the city and the school. Yeah. And yeah. then um, shortly, the year after the terrorist attacks on the 26th of November, mm. um, the year, the next year, uh, we moved on to Frankfurt International School, where I've been for the last 11 years. So that kind of sequentially uh, is kind of where I've been um, kind of around the world, if you will, um, in public uh, department of defense and uh, international private schools. Uh, so I've really had uh, a broad and deep experience um, with many, many different communities. So it's been a real, it's been a fantastic career and I I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for sharing that. It's great to get an insight into into your story. I want to take you back to that high school principal uh, or the or the teacher, or I think you said a high school um, high school principal who really impacted you, where you looked at them and thought they're making a difference. What uh, tell us more about that person and and what was it about them that you think, um, if you think to back then, you know, as as a young Paul, that you looked at them and went they're really making a difference. What was it and how they led? You know, there's two people. There's a, there's actually a religion teacher, Ray Rao in ninth grade. Uh, he yep. was one and, you know, he would, he would talk about, you know, making your dreams visible and that mm. stuck with me. And then the high school principal, what really struck me and has impacted me along with, you know, and been imprinted by other members, uh, um, other mentors was, uh, his ability to connect, activate, and bring the best out of everybody around him. So it wasn't the fact that, you know, he was some charismatic rah-rah leader, <laughs> but just I, the way he worked everyone, and it wasn't artificial. You mm -hmm. know, it was the, the students in the hallway. It was the way he talked to teachers. It met, you know, parents, greeting, you know, everything that person did was about people around him yeah. and by building up that capacity that motivation that inspiration that potential all of those things by building that up and everyone around him in such a you know it was like it was it was just natural yeah. the way that flow went and i thought boy you know it's not it's not that he's carrying everything on his shoulders he's 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 giving the fuel to others to make this school a great school and that's what I just remember how he made me feel and how he mm. made others feel. And it was evident. So that's, I think, what really inspired me to get into um, educational leadership. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's really profound with how you unpacked that. If you think back, was there anything in particular that he did or now as a, as a leader with so much experience yourself, you look back and think, ah, yes, I see how intentionally was about how he did this or that, that you, that you look back on and, and see that were sort of um, areas of his leadership where he was very intentional in terms of how he did that, fueling people? Yeah, I think, you know, I, re I recall him 
visible, all, you know, seem to be everywhere at the right time. Um, <laughs> humble, kind. Uh, those were, you know, those are, I think, two, two things. So you could be, you know, it seemed like it's someone you could talk with either professionally as a teacher or as a student um, in taking a risk or something you were challenged with. But I just remember uh, omnipresent humbleness, yeah. a kindness, an approachability. All of those things are things that um, I've put in my satchel of leadership. Um, and I, I, I don't know if you can learn it or not to be humble, kind. I mean, you can always be visible, but you can be artificially visible. Um, yes. But, you know, it's just a, there's a way about uh, leaders that people will approach, will talk to. Um, and he, he had that gift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. I love that. I find it really interesting that you put visibility, um, and that, that omnipresence always seems to be at the right, you know, he always seems to be at the right important places when you go, oh, he's there again. I love that, that you put that next to humility because it's come up a lot for me with working with leaders is, uh, as a, as a really necessary, thing to invest in for a lot of leaders which is how can you if it's I think it's often when it's not so natural it's it's going how can I intentionally be visible uh, yeah and authentically like where are some places it would really matter I, I know one of the leaders that um that I that I love uh, uh working with locally where I am where I am here is a great leader he's a school leader and uh, when I when I turn up to do some work with the school, I often see him. I think uh, my guess would be maybe once a week. He's on the yeah, sort of lollipop uh, is what we call it over here with the the person who stops the traffic to let the kids and parents cross. And I see oh, yeah. him there, and I go, mm -hmm. you know what? I, obviously, that's a super intentional decision because the way their school is built, every single parent has to cross that crossing. And so he knows that if he just puts himself there once a week then it's going to be a great way for him to just cross paths with every every parent. I know it would be deeper than that too for him because he's a real servant leader. But I um I, I just noticed that and I thought that's so that's so genius. It's something so simple and yet it's a way for him to be able to make contact with every student, every parent in by just being in one place. Um so yeah I, I love that you put that next to humility. That was that was great, Paul. Uh, what about other mentors? Uh, who are some other mentors in your career who have really sure. played a played a big part in in you becoming who you are as a leader today? Yeah, so another one. Another one I would highlight is uh, Dr. Gail Hendricks. Uh, she was a principal uh, and then became superintendent, and she's actually the one who encouraged me to. Uh, pursue leadership at a different level mm. and uh, put some initial leadership characteristics in, in place. Um, really tough, uh, tough leader, uh, effective leader, and, you know, very caring. Um, <laughs> and so she was instrumental. But one story about her was interesting. So I, she hired me as an assistant principal. I'm up at, uh, up at a high school and we have this earthquake where, you know, damage is done to the facility. Yeah. You know, 36,000 students are in this uh, system. So it's a big network and it's a big system. Um, and, you know, I'm getting increasingly frustrated by the lack of response from central office to what I thought, you know, saw as a safety concern in our high school which also meant we couldn't use some classrooms and, you know, teachers are complaining, you know, people are rightfully frustrated mm. and I was kind of the conduit for that frustration. So in my infinite wisdom, I wrote the quite a sharp uh, memo in the day. We would have sent emails <laughs> in, but I'm sure it was a paper memo that yeah. went to Dr. Hendricks and CC'd somebody else as she was superintendent now um, on my worldview of um, what wasn't getting done, how it should get done and, how they weren't addressing the student safety issues. Well, two days later, we get an uh, alert from the security office that Dr. Hendricks is at the front gate up from central office. <laughs> so she comes into my office. Uh, her face was a little red and she was clearly angry. She stood in my doorway and she said, Paul, if you ever write a memo like that again, you will be in the classroom the next day. Then she came in further. I'm like, oh, my gosh. She came in. She turned the chair around, sat at my desk, and she said, now, 
let's rewrite that memo in a way that is going to get action. And so she sat with me and we sat for 45 minutes, rewrote the whole memo on a, in a way that was going to invite somebody to help join me in solving a problem. So it's that kind of thing that, that, you know, you know, she could have just been angry. She, there are a number of ways she could have done. And she was a busy, busy leader for her yeah. to come up and say, you know, it's important that Paul learns a lesson and I'm going to go deliver him that lesson and I'm going to make a teachable moment out of it. That was a, <laughs> that was a real important moment for me. So she was, a, she was one key member, you know, where we as leaders make mistakes, are yeah. we as current leaders willing to sit down with those that we're developing and say, okay, made a mistake. Let's work together on, on how we could do it differently. That, that was a, a point there. So she's with one and I can, I can go on with others as well. Yeah. I, oh, well, before you do, I just love the, the mixture of her response with how direct she was and, and sounds like a real fierce um, leader, but, but then so caring to actually jump in and, and, uh, <laughs> and help you get it right. I love that combination. I think there's something really profound about that, um, that combination. Uh, who, who, else, who else is there um, that comes to mind as a, as a mentor for you in your leadership journey, Paul? Um, so there's a series of, uh, um, heads of school from different, different places that I've worked with and they've all kind of, um, you know, imprinted me in different ways. Um, mm. there was, a, a Rob Mockrish who had a, had an intensity, uh, you know, an intensity about change. Um, and I learned both, you know, how to harness that intensity and how to channel the intensity. Um, you know, there's a phrase, you get too far ahead of the troops and you start to look like the enemy. Um, there was, <laughs> um, um, but, you know, there was a, uh, leader, Bob Hetzel who followed Rob, who had a, uh, you know, a peaceful patient. Um, and he really taught me the value of storytelling and caring for people. And of course, as leaders, we always care for people, but yeah. he, he opened up uh, new dimensions of care. Um, then there was a course, you know, I didn't know these international schools really existed. I knew Department of Defense and my uh, Dick Weatherman was a professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, and he and um, uh, Sue Rosenthal were, they, they led a program there and they offered me an opportunity to take a couple of classes with a summer cohort of international people. And there I met, um, uh, there was a number of heads of schools that ran a course on how to lead a school during a war. And so that, you know, that group, you know, mentored wow. me in crisis management. Yes. And, you know, there's been obviously with the current pandemic, but there's also been India, Pakistan squaring off against one another. There were the terrorist attacks. So, there was yeah. earthquakes. So throughout my career, um, you know, that, uh, that has served me, served me well also. Um, so though, you know, that'd be three or four, uh, additional mentors that, you know, they, it's like, you know, they all put a different patch on your leadership tapestry. Um, yeah. and I've been blessed with, you know, not having the same type of men, uh, mentorship, um, or, you know, maybe there's something inside different types of leaders that, um, understand somebody has something to give and are able to accept that gift. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing about uh, some of those people uh, specifically. I, I love hearing about the different people that have impacted uh, leaders like yourself. So if we, if we jump into talking about crisis management, say there's a leader listening who has never had to deal with a crisis. Uh, but I, I've just been working with someone recently who's who's been new in a CEO position, and they're in their first position. And, and I was saying to them, "Well, you're you're not inexperienced anymore. You now have, you know, you've now got one year of experience. You know, but for them, they're very much going. I know that I'm on a learning curve. And so there might be leaders out there who um, maybe no no matter how long they've been in something, they uh, they've never been through a, a crisis like that. Although I guess with COVID most leaders have been through an element of a crisis in the past two years, haven't they? Um, what, what would be your sort of overview to a leader who hasn't had much experience with crisis management about that topic? Hmm. 
Yeah, I've had a fair amount of it in my career. And I'd say what's different, I think, first of all, what's different about most crises and this crisis is that this one is chronic and just does, you know, goes on a long period of time. Most of the crises either are acute and they're, you know, a matter of an event um, and the impact of that event, both current and afterwards, or they go on for a couple months, uh, but they, they know there's a clear ending. So I just say there's two type, chronic and acute. So one mm. important understanding is knowing your community. There's a great poem, and I wish I could recall the name of it, but the essence of it, Bob Hetzel sent to me. You know, I was in the midst of uh, the Mumbai terrorist attack, yeah. and he sent me this poem, and it was really, it was about a tree. He said, just remember, you know, you're you're the right person at the right time for this uh, for this crisis. Um, then he attached a poem that said, "Remember, uh, remember that um, once the leaves start shaking, the branches start shaking, the trunks start shaking, and before you know it, the whole tree is shaking, and the wind isn't blowing." And, it, and the point of the poem was that you know <laughs> the crisis could be over. Um, or you could be in the midst of it, but once everybody starts shaking, um, it's tough to get a hold of that that shaking community. So a few yeah. things um, I learned is um, predictability of communication. So you know, even if you don't have anything to say, knowing that whatever the sit- your situation is, you will have an email, you know, at ten o'clock every morning as we go through this crisis. Yeah, Uh, whatever it is, it's really important to have that predictability of communication. It's also important because it is safe. You know, people are are paralyzed with fear to say, you know, it's over or we are safe. We need to we need to open the doors. We need to get back to it. We need to acknowledge our loss. Um, We need to but we need to for the kids sake, we need to. Process the fear, but you know, get back in the game. So for example, uh, with the terrorist attack, the one there, you know, mm. I called all the faculty and staff in on Sunday afternoon and said, you know, we need, we need to open tomorrow. We need to get yeah. school back open. We're, we've got the safety of the Indian military and the other uh, securities around us. Um, kids are scared. Parents are scared. This is a safe haven. We need to open. And we opened with 97% of our kids coming back, uh, which was wow. remarkable. Yeah. Um, so I think those are a few things that how, how important communication is, acknowledging loss, processing it, but really being clear um, about uh, when and how you're communicating. I love that. I, I think that um, that's just such a, uh, I think it's also, there's probably a lesson in there that goes beyond even, um, even, even a crisis, but that is just brilliant advice around the predictability of communication. I think maybe it's because in the midst of, of so much uncertainty, you, you know um, in terms of that relationship with the organisation, with the leader of the organisation, that you're going to have certainty around um, knowing what's happening. And um, that's, that's brilliant, brilliant advice, Paul. Yeah, and if I can say one, I don't think school leaders maybe they do recognize that very often, or at least in my experience, you become the center of the community. You are the, you are, you're, you're doing a better job than probably most companies are doing. Everything is disparate, but you are the center of this whole community. So all of a sudden, you know, we had a situation where some some parents were tragically um, killed and the community was calling me to come talk to the children. Um, at their building. And I came in with our school psychologist over to talk to, they had a student in kindergarten, fourth and seventh grade. And I walk into this room and it was almost like I was a a religious figure or a political figure or something. You know, you had this diverse international, but you walk into this building. It's like all of a sudden, everybody is looking to you for communication, resolution, solutions. Um, And you just have to be prepared that you, you are the center of a very diverse community and people are going to look to you in different roles than they have before. How, how honest did you, I guess in your experience going through crisis, going through a crisis like uh, in Mumbai, which I can't even imagine leading through that. um, How honest, what did you find helpful in terms of how honest to be with the stakeholders, you know, with everyone involved about, 
doubts and uncertainties that you were holding or the organization was holding? Or did you work those out privately and then come out with a with an acknowledgement of some of that, but more strength? I'm, I'm interested to know what you found, um, ha- how you manage that. You know, there's there's details you don't share. I think you need to exude the confidence, but not a re- you know not a reckless confidence. Um, you know, I think letting your guard down and being authentic with some of the challenges you face um, is is good to do. Um, but there there are graphic there are details that people don't need to know, if you will. But I think being sure. uh, authentic. Uh, builds confidence with those around you and those that that authenticity and that confidence of, you know, the teacher and the the teaching assistant in the classroom of a kindergarten class, for example, is going to impact these young kids. So if they have a level of confidence, the students are going to have a level of confidence. So it's really important. Like I go back to that high school principal, you know, building that capacity in every member of your organization is so critically important. But I have to say, you know, when I, but there's a part that people would never, you know, they, somebody asked, how did it feel to know, every, you know, everything that you were dealing with? And probably to this day, you know, it's like uh, somebody gripped your heart and squeezed it and left a couple of bruises. Yeah. And you can breathe, you can kind of breathe in and kind of feel that pain. Um, folks would never have seen that. Um, yeah. But it was certainly, certainly there. Yeah, hmm. that's a really, uh, really good answer. What are what are the biggest mistakes you see leaders making in, in crisis, or or when you've when you've watched other leaders outside of education in in crisis, and you've seen something um, maybe again and again, and you go, I think that's just unhelpful, um, and they're just shooting themselves in the foot. That's that's really not going to be a helpful way to um to navigate a crisis what what are what are some mistakes that you often see leaders make hmm. you know it's challenging because you know um you know you don't know their context or their circumstances so you're getting some partial information um but i think one mistake i would t- you know you clearly need you know a person in charge if you will but I found that the more a leader makes themselves the only, um, uh, how do I character make this clear? Um, I guess the mistake I see is when somebody makes the crisis about themselves mm. more than the crisis, and it's I don't know if it's an ego or unintentional, but it's more about them than it is the crisis, and then it just deteriorates everything around it. So I find, um, you know, having a team you're working with or a crisis team um, is a, is a good approach. And I think exudes confidence and it's fine for if it's the head of school or the head of the organization or an assistant, whoever is the head of that team. um, That's fine that you have that consistent communication or that person's leading that team. But I think that's probably the biggest thing when the crisis becomes more about the, an individual leader than it does about the crisis, um, then it's kind of the cancer of the um, of, resi- of finding resolution or getting through it. Yeah, that uh, that reminds me of uh, I can't remember where I where I read it or heard it, but uh, about the uh, the really massive oil spill going back um, it must be a decade. I, I can't remember what year it was in or a bit longer, but uh, there was something that the uh, the CEO of um, uh, would have been. Uh, B, BHP or uh, BP, whoever. Oh, the, yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah. And there was something that that CEO said where right in the midst of it, which I can completely understand, but it was so, it, it just lost so much respect because he said something along the lines of um, when people were sort of, when journalists were sort of trying to ask, do you, do you realize how significant, like this is the most catastrophic um, event in terms of a, an oil spill, and, and his response was along the lines of, "Oh, I know. It's been, you know, it just, it, it just never ends in terms of, you know, the, the, like it, it just keeps following me." Or his his response was about him, and it was about how it was affecting him, and it was just, it was a real foot in mouth moment. But I just remember hearing that and thinking, "Oh yeah, that was just a real turning uh-huh. point 
where I think up until that point people were still watching and 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 maybe there was a there was there was hope that the response might be positive but I really felt like the way I was reading this narrative about that story was that was a real point where people lost trust and because it, it yeah. what he was saying was that this most significant environmental event he went to the impact on him and um, so I, I think yeah. that's really profound with how you've um, how you've explained that um, in terms of leadership if we take more of a bird's eye view and take a step back what do you see as even beyond education you know for for leaders and particularly young leaders out there who might be listening and they're in a in a role at the moment and uh, and they look forward and and think oh I'd love to be really doing you know something significant around the world somewhere as a leader of you know in a, in a different in a different culture or in the public sphere or what do you see as the biggest challenges facing all of us in the next you know 10 20 30 years for, for leaders, particularly younger leaders coming through? Well, um, I think in the current, I think bringing, to, bringing people together, uh, you know, it's important 10, 15 years ago, it's going to become increasingly important going forward. Um, so I think that is one um, through line that the ability for young leaders to not just get consensus, but uh, there just seems to be more polar opposites than I've seen in the past. There's always been disagreements and that sort of thing. So I think that ability to bring people together um, <laughs> is important. Um, another one would be to, to the extent leaders are willing, you know, if they want to, get different experiences, you know, being willing to make changes in location, industry, um, position, um, where you can get those experiences to move into different leadership positions. So, you know, sometimes I face uh, situations where you've got, uh, you know, I really try to develop leaders here at FIS and other ways, and oh. I hate, I hate to lose them. Uh, but I also know that they need to move on and get different experiences at different locations if they're going to grow to be the next level of leaders. And I do see some folks that get, get you know, aren't will you know, have this aspiration to uh, lead, but not the willingness to move to where the next experience is so they can get stuck there. And then they're mm. never going to have the, the scope of influence that they hope to or the scope of impact that they hope to. Um, because that level of leadership may not be in their current organization. So that would be, you know, a second piece of advice, you know, and you may find it, you know, that's just, I think it's just, you've got to know where you want to be um, and be willing to take sometimes side steps or different, different steps to, to get to that position. Um, let's see. The other, I would say our sense of belonging, um, you know, how are we uh, ensuring uh, cultivating um, organizational diversity within all of our, our whatever organization you're leading, that is, um, you know, that's a, that's an opportunity for us here and now. Um, but we're nowhere close to where we want to be in that, in those areas. So I think that's going to be a important focus for, uh, internationalizing, diversifying, um, our organization so that all, um, all, members of the community or members of a educational community feel they have the same access towards positions, resources, and, and such. Uh, so that will be something I think for the next generation of leaders to um, really gain some more momentum on uh, further than um, the start that's happened here uh, today now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to go back to that first point you mentioned around bringing people together. I love uh, technology and um, I guess I really see the opportunities of with technological advancements with with building uh, building teams and remote and remote teams and um, I, I think it's fascinating uh, so there's a couple of different aspects about this I'd, I'd love to ask you about what have you learned through you know particularly through COVID with 
I guess, really bringing people together and, and building that sense of belonging maybe for staff and for students and parents when you haven't been able always to be together as much as normal and uh, and that's had to be a bit different through COVID. Uh, what, what have you learned? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, to, to, my, to the one point previously is, in, you know, if you will, the regular communication, I think from an accordion perspective, when you can get people together, you do so. And it might mm. be in between waves or whatever. Um, it can be small groups, uh, different things. So we've really tried to, when things are good, we take advantage of them being good and we come together. When, the, when we're virtual, and virtual has its, it has its benefits, um, we, I've used video more than I have in the past on a regular yep. basis, as I've mentioned. You know, so every week I've got a weekly uh, message to the faculty and for, to what I would say our colleagues. That's all of our faculty, staff, all our contracted folks. Um, so video has yes. been effective. And then obviously, you know, you're using, you're using Zoom, but you, you know, use it in different ways. Um, for example, we, we've been able to access, uh, like Dr. Amit Sood, he was at the Mayo Clinic on resilience. He did a session with our faculty and our community where we brought everybody, you know, it brought everybody together around, you know, an area that was permeating. It's not just a school thing. It's a parent thing. It's an uh, educator thing. It permeated all of those, all of those areas. So, um, those are, you know, those are a couple, couple of examples, uh, consistency of communication. I think, you know, sometimes I, I'll have somebody come up to me and say, you know, I saw the news last week and you, you looked a little tired or something like that. <laughs> or, you know, somebody sends me a picture of, uh, you know, having a glass of wine and they're watching the news on a Friday night, you know, but it built, you know, it builds that personal connection. Like, yeah, it was a hard week. And I'm, yeah. uh, you know, you know, even as a, head of school, it's been a hard week. And I know you've had a hard week in the classroom or as housemeister. So I think that that visual um, connection every week, I think has been helpful for, for our community um, going through this point. The other piece is going, is I think, you know, there's a skill to facilitation. There's programs like facilitative leadership. And I would, I would recommend that young leaders do get some training in how to facilitate groups it sounds yes. obvious, but sometimes I see folks that you know are wanting to facilitate groups, but they don't know if they're brainstorming, opening, closing, narrowing, making a decision. If they're in dialogue, uh, they don't know where they are in the process um, and what they want their group to do. And that sounds like leadership 101, but I do would recommend if young leaders or leaders of any age um, haven't had some training in facilitating groups that they do. Uh, they do do that. So the people they're working with know where they're at and um, know if we're making decisions or we're having conversation. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Any any resources that you've come across uh, or that are personal favorites of yours around uh, when it comes to facilitating and, and, and growing in that area of leadership? Yes, I was just looking for... <laughs> So one of the one, you know, facilitative leadership by Interaction Associates. I don't even know if they're still in business, um, mm. but there, but there's others. Obviously, I, you know, there's a number of groups in every every country, but that is one that uh, I, you know, Bob Hetzel um, in Delhi brought to us, and all of all of the leadership team uh, went through this process, um, which was very, I found very effective. Uh, but there's a number of a, a number of uh, number of those types of things. So I think. They're probably fairly easy to find, but that one worked. That one stuck with me. It's one of those binders that you know, old school. I keep on my shelf, and I do find myself uh, flipping yes. through it. Even you know, it's been six, 18 years, but I still that binder's gone in every location I've gone to. Yeah, that's gold. I I, I love that, and I can see why that would be so helpful. Uh, when it comes to communication, one thing. So <laughs> I'm thinking more of content for for leaders who are trying to. Build, uh, build a brand or involved in marketing where the thing I often hear is um, we really want to do this and then uh, this is an area sort of I'll, I'll work with leaders and with marketing teams on and then you get three months down the track and you look at what, what they've done and you say, well, we've really, we wanted to have you talking more to video or we wanted to, but you've really, uh, you, you haven't done that. <laughs> and it's often a case of, well, I don't really know what to say or they can be a bit perfectionistic about it. I'm just interested to know, like, for a leader 
who might not be a real media, like it's it's not their it's not necessarily their wheelhouse and their favorite thing to do. What sort of what sort of content? It might sound obvious. It might be natural to you, but but what sort of content or what, what communication do you think leaders should be giving their communities uh, regularly at all times, but particularly in in crisis? What are the sort of things that that a leader can speak to or um, or maybe use as as uh, prompts to if they struggle to come up with content themselves? Hmm. Well, they might be in a little trouble if they're leader and struggling to communicate, but um, that's true. <laughs> you know, I think you can go, you can go back to I guess you know you've got you've got the facts. Okay, what is what is happening? Um, but I would you know I would go back to okay, there's 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 facts, there's information people need to know. There's that, but equally importantly is what is the impact on the the wellness, the mental health, the the intangibles, but very tangible impact on students and adults in your community. So yes, uh, the case rate per 100,000 might be this fine, and the school is going to do this technically. But how are we, how is this impacting a fifth grade student? How are we as a school addressing or as an organization, how are we addressing those critical aspects of people's wellness and mental health would be a second area. I would, uh, if somebody struggles and that's probably where they're going to struggle because, um, Mm. the facts should come pretty clearly. And, uh, but it's that next level, that next, uh, circle around the facts is what do these facts, how do they impact me as a student, as a employee, or as somebody, uh, a parent in the community. So I think if they probably thought around those two things of what has happened, what do people need to know technically, and what is the impact? And I guess thirdly, how, how are you mitigating or how are you as a school mitigating that impact? And is there some advice for parents or uh, employees on how they can personally mitigate uh, the impact of some of the negative aspects of the crisis. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you think of any examples of what you just unpacked that you've uh, that come to mind that you felt were particularly useful for your community going through when you were going through one of the different crises you, you've had to lead through? Was there anything that comes to mind where you think, yeah, that's right, that particular message or that partic- that seemed to really stick with people? Um, or that, that people said that was really helpful or they found that really helpful? Does anything come to mind? Oh, boy, yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. I'm... <laughs> yeah, you kind of got me with a flutter. I'm trying to capture my thought here. It's, uh, you know, I just think it, it, it's almost like... Uh, flashes of things going through your things uh, in this yeah. most recent one. Um, geez. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, it's funny. I'm stumped from, uh, from the, you know, the, the magnitude of communication and just, you know, folks, like I said, coming up to talk to me about, different things. And, you know, I, I think about seeing, um, working with our PT, you know, our parent teacher group, you know, mm. them presenting, them sharing a challenge parents were having us finding a resource and then seeing parents, uh, teachers, employees, myself, you know, working with, uh, with the Mayo Clinic, uh, Dr. Sood, uh, on an evening session. And then, he and his daughter did a session for students in grades uh, one and two um, called a happy genius program. Uh, But it had this cascading effect down to the students. I mean, there's so many, yeah, there's just these ingredients throughout that we had Um, at the end of a professional development day. um, We coordinated a host of things that people could do. And for example, taking a walk in the woods 
there is a Frisbee. There's just things that were kind of an outlet. That was, you know, another thing. There's like 40 or 50 just different things that create this tapestry <laughs> of this crisis. Um, that, you know, any one of them, yeah, okay, that's, you know, that that Zoom with an expert was, you know, a 1% thing. Um, that PD day uh, activity was another percent. But they all just, they all add up to, you know, a chronicness of success um, in this quilt of getting through it. So you kind of, you kind of trip me up with, I, you know, there's no, you know, in the Mumbai or New Delhi, you know, there was kind of some clear things because it was shorter lived, but this one is really yes. a, a marathon of not getting worn down and continuing to uh, bring things that are current and relevant and not being too, you know, you know, also recognizing it's, you can be too, there's that term toxic positivity. Try not to be toxically positive when things aren't <laughs> going well, but yes. we need to get through it, you know? So let's, let's make sure uh, folks have the tools in every area that they can get through it, uh, but also recognize uh, it's a hard time. I think there's something to that. That's, um, I, I think that is an answer in, in, in itself that you look at the current crisis and you go, well, even the even the the Mayo Clinic, you know, um, expert doing a Zoom session was probably a one percent, and I think um, I think that's so significant because it reminds me of uh, I think John Maxwell who talks about consistency and intentionality. You know, if you can just be as a leader, if you can be consistent and intentional, mm-hmm. then that's so much of the battle. And I feel like that's that sort of. Uh, what you're touching on as well is, you know, through a crisis, if you can just, yeah, and there's some great engagement you just spoke to there around engaging with the parent teachers and the, that group and finding out what the challenges were. And I think if you can, if you can be consistent and intentional and rather than trying to do, and I guess it's a little bit of what you've said about the communication as well, rather than trying to do one big, amazing presentation speech to your community that, that you know moves mountains what does it look like to have regular communication that that is consistent um intentional and really chips away at building that um sense of belonging that community and and building that bridge for people but between you and and the people you're leading the people you're serving i think yeah so i actually think that was a a great answer well thank you i felt i tripped up on that one but <laughs> <laughs> i i think um no one was prepared for this crisis um not that not that people are necessarily prepared for any crisis but i, I think you're right the magnitude of how it's hung around I, I, and the thing that came to mind as you were talking for me was uh, i think we need to learn from covid about how to manage change better because we've had this sort of ultimate case study of prolonged um, change and, and and sort of change fatigue and um, I think some of the things that we've learned through COVID that that you've touched on there are actually really helpful things to consider in particularly when people are leading uh, you know transformational projects or transitional projects where there's a, a significant amount of change and it won't be anything like uh, what we've been through with COVID but there will be some similarities I think where you're community uh, can get fatigued in the same way that our communities have been um, through this time. It's uh, you brought up, you brought up, you brought up an interesting point. You know, I would say, I would argue that education has changed as a result of COVID uh, in the last year and a half, more than it's changed in the last 15 years. And mm. I'm amazed at, you know, and it, part of it is it's not just technological. There is a technological side to it, but it's a willingness to uh, adapt, risk take, try different things from assessment to delivery to every aspect has really been forced upon us as leaders, as educators. And I am just uh, so impressed at the teachers here in Frankfurt and around the world who have had to move, change, and learn in such a exponentially different way. 
um, that it will have pr uh, profound effects going forward. So as much as I don't want, I want COVID to be gone as fast as possible, we are profoundly changed as a profession for, for the better um, as a result. Yeah, I, I agree. I've seen that. And I was, I remember uh, standing at a whiteboard with a team probably, it was probably last year uh, when we were sort of six months in really, really globally to, uh, to COVID and, and standing at the whiteboard with the team and, and the words that, that we ended up putting up there for them, which I found really interesting because they, they were a school leadership team and, the, and we put up the words uh, revolution and revelation. And for them, they were saying, mm. we need to, there was this sense of, okay, this has been a crazy, <laughs> challenging six months, but they were saying, there's been some things that this has, this has <laughs> like led to a bit of a revolution that would never have happened um, in some of the areas that we've just from reacting and needing to survive <laughs> as educators and, and, and meet our mission and in this climate, uh, you know, and uh, and the other thing was the revelation. What are the things we've learned from this? Um, we can't forget them. Like we cannot get to the other side and forget them. And I was so impressed. I just was so taken aback that um, for a team that had been through so much, they had that uh, perspective. And, and I've really been just blown away by uh, the educators um, I work with and those that I know. I think it's, I think it's, um, it's been a really, really challenging season for educators, um, and and I think you're right. I think it has, I think, um, I think people and the and the profession is is changed um, as a result of it, and hmm, it's significant. Well, that's probably a good place to, to land, but I, I said beforehand that I had a sense that we might only touch the surface. I, I want to ask you so many more questions, Paul, about um, so many different aspects of leadership. I, I really have appreciated your thoughts on what we've discussed, uh, particularly around crisis management. I think uh, I think probably the, the thing just right now that, that sticks out for me from our conversation today is the idea of um, how how did you put it the um, predictable communication I think that that's that's one of those things I feel like so much of leadership is this it it's uh, Patrick Lencioni talks about it with teams you know mm. in terms of building a healthy team it's uh, it's both remarkably simple and possible yet painfully difficult and I feel like predictable mm. communication is one of those things gee that's a simple idea and that's so possible like anyone can do that. Uh, and yet, in the midst of a crisis, doing that is probably is probably difficult to to stick to that and 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 do it. But that's just such a great piece of advice, and there's been so many. So um, I, I think it would be uh, I'd love to invite you back to do another uh, a round two and to um, chat about more elements of leadership. We can touch on some some different topics next time, perhaps if uh, if you'd be keen. Yeah, it's been I've enjoyed talking with you, and I'd be. Happy to engage uh, uh, anytime. And uh, any final thoughts for you as we as we land uh, today's conversation? Yeah, just uh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about leadership and people. Um, you know, it's a people business, and uh, if we're uh, as uh, Roland Barth uh, would say, you know, the, you can tell the quality of a school by the nature of the adult relationships. Um, and those adult relationships uh, translate into the relationships with the, with the students. So um, I think uh, taking care of the people first um, will take care, of, uh, take care of all our students going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I love that. That's a great place to land. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Paul. I really appreciate you um, giving up the time. I really appreciate your thoughts today. And, uh, and thank you to... Um, our listeners. I really appreciate you spending the time with us today and we'll catch you next time. All right. Thanks so much, Jano. Talk to you soon.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership and leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership, and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage, consultclarity.org, right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this, I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, Jono White, or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.